Hey guys, this is Devin Leonard, Mule Deer Fanatic. You're listening to the Outdoor Adventures Podcast with Jason. Welcome to Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Each week I bring the world of hunting, fishing, and conservation to you. From the great hunting and fishing opportunities found in the Americas to the dream safaris located on the dark continent beyond. I'll introduce you to those who are already out in the field living every outdoor enthusiast's dream as well as outfitters and gear manufacturers that can make those dreams your reality. Racks offering the coolest bow hanger on the market. Display your bow with pride in your house, your garage, or anywhere you'd like. We carry most major brands while also offering a custom service if you have an idea or logo of your own that you'd like made into a hanger. Use them to display your traditional bow, compound bow, or even your crossbow. They also work great for hanging your hunting gear, your bags, or hats. Not to mention the design just looks plain awesome all by themselves. A Rax hanger makes for a great gift for that special hunter in your life. Go to RaxInc.com to see some of the available designs or contact us to discuss the custom hanger of your own. For listeners of the Outdoor Adventures with Jason podcast, use the promo code PODCAST and get 15% off your first order. Rax, show off your passion. Welcome to this episode of Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Today, I've got on the gentleman from the Bushnell Trigger Effect show, which is filmed in Canada, or actually filmed around the world in many locations, but they're based out of Canada. I've got Kent Mickey and Dean Trumbly on the line. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing really good. Yeah, fantastic. I'm calling from Michigan, but I've got Kent on from Manitoba, and then way out on the West Coast is Dean in British Columbia. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're both getting our typical Canadian snow right now, so uh, you're, you're probably used to that as well from Michigan. It is. So if you're getting it, that means you're sending it this way. So we appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, we you're are. <laughs> I spent 25 years living down south between Texas and Arizona, so snow is not necessarily my favorite thing. No, that's that's for sure. It uh, it's it's been a tough winter for for us up here in Canada this year. It's been uh, kind of unusual weather, but we're tough. We can we can live with it. I've seen that now. For folks that might not even realize it, Canada is so geographically large that what you see in Manitoba, how is that compared to what takes place out in British Columbia, Dean? Do you guys get a much more temperate because of the water? Yeah, I mean we we definitely get an ocean effect. Uh, where I live is literally only about a four and a half hour drive from the Pacific. So what? happens is we don't get the bitter cold that Kent gets in the interior, but we get more snow. So it's kind of an off trade. We get warm and snow and he gets cold and, and, well, just cold. I mean, it's like living in a deep freeze. Yeah, it is cold out here. Uh, As a matter of fact, this morning... The temperature here, it's a beautiful sunny day. It's its gorgeous. It looks beautiful outside, but it is minus 44 degrees Celsius, which is basically this uh, minus 40 Celsius and minus 40 Fahrenheit are the same temperatures. So uh, that'll give you some idea how cold it is here. But it looks really nice. You just got to dress real warm. <laughs> warm. I mean, that's like, that's worse than going into a deep freeze. <laughs> yeah, it is. All the stores have to do is open their front door. Forget running the coolers. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's for sure. But one thing that cold does do is you get some big deer, big moose, big everything, because they have to survive that, that chilling cold. 
Yeah, that's for sure. It's, uh, it, it does play a biological effect on uh, different species, for sure. I mean, we've got uh, some of the best deer, elk, moose, coyotes in the world uh, right here, and it, it is only the big, tough ones survive, so... Well, taking a step back, Kent, you were actually out in the far west in British Columbia, Lake Dean. I know that's how you guys met. Is that where the seed came to start Bushnell's trigger effect? Yeah, it, it, that's correct, Jason. I'll just give a little bit of background and, and I'll let Dean jump in if, if I misstep or he wants to add anything for sure. But I started off, uh, I grew up here in Manitoba and at an early age, right out of university, I left and moved to British Columbia. And there I started a career in uh, big game guiding and I guided in northern British Columbia for almost 30 years, 27 years up there. And during my time in British Columbia, I was a like every Canadian kid, an avid hockey player, and joined a hockey team in British Columbia, and that's how Dean and I met. We played hockey together originally. I continued to work as a professional big game guide for all those years. Dean and I continued to play hockey together. We started hunting together, and then eventually I started working for Dean between guiding jobs with his uh, environmental consulting firm, and we did uh, wildlife and fishery studies as Dean is a professional biologist. So. I will now hand that off to Dean and let him continue on with the story. Yeah, and I mean, Kent's totally right. I mean, we, we definitely are hockey heads. We grew up, you know, playing fairly high levels of hockey, and then, like Kent said, we met. But I, I think the what really kicked off the whole Bushnell Trigger affected adventure was, you know, Kent was, you know, getting close to his uh, 40s, and so was I, and, and I was getting tired of doing the uh, biology work, and Kent was getting tired of doing the, the guiding work, and we knew that we had, you know, 15, 20 years of uh, bodies left in us. You know, him and I have hunted all over the place, and we've talked for years about, you know, how it would be great to kind of share our adventures. And, you know, it just kind of came to a head. We both just said, you know what, like, you know, we've we've had great, you know, guiding and, and biology careers, and, and let's maybe try finishing off with something different. And that literally is how Bushnell's Trigger Effect was born, is just... Uh, you know, two middle-aged guys that decided that, you know, we wanted to finish off our careers doing something that we absolutely had a huge passion for. It's not just hunting in Canada. and You could make a whole career out of just hunting in Canada. The number of species, the geographical differences from east to west of the country, it's amazing the ground that is covered. Out in British Columbia, Kent, were you guiding, was it sheep or was it just everything? It, it was pretty much everything. I guided for uh, stone sheep, mountain goat, caribou, grizzly, black bear, wolf, moose, everything. Uh, did a little bit of fish guiding. Yeah, I, I pretty much covered everything that you could possibly think of. And I, I also guided in the prairie provinces here as well. Because the hunting seasons in Canada are limited at, at some point, you have to kind of expand if you want to. You have to kind of travel if you want to stay working as a guide. And so what I would do is I would guide up in northern BC for all those species I mentioned. Then when that season was over, I would jump over to Saskatchewan and guide whitetail till later in the year, then come back to BC and guide for cougar in, in the late winter. And then pretty soon it was springtime and I was heading back up uh, to the north part of the province again. So I kept myself busy pretty much 10 months out of the year in a guiding camp somewhere. So it, it was it was a pretty fantastic career and I don't regret a day of it. 
I've never hunted the sheep. I'm I'm actually handicapped, so I I could never do the physical part of going after sheep, and I can't sit on a horse. Yeah. But I know, isn't there some issues? And and Dean, you're probably very well as a biologist. Both of you are probably very well versed on this. Is there an issue with the stone sheep becoming much more limited? Yeah, it. You know, we're actually experiencing that with a lot of our big game species in British Columbia. You know, the the days when Kent guided, I mean, literally, you could go out and see bands of rams and everything like that. But uh, we are starting to notice uh, declines in numbers in areas. I mean, there's still pockets of areas that have healthy populations of sheep, but like in general, like our moose, our elk, even our mule deer are are starting to decline in numbers. And yeah, I mean, there's you know, the the one thing I always find, especially being a biologist my whole career, is everybody looks for the silver bullet but the reality is there's multiple contributing factors that are happening or what we call in the field cumulative effect that are hitting you know all of these critters you know everything from linear corridors to climate change to you know habitat fragmentation i mean there's there's so many things that are hitting them not to mention us as humans are breeding at a huge rate and and expanding population and penetrating deeper and deeper into these habitats so that's gonna turn around and obviously as you said create the corridors the animals need those corridors to get from one breeding population to the other and as cities expand i know some of those have been cut off or had to be reworked you guys have a very strong from what i understand strong biology program dedicated to wildlife management uh we we do to a certain extent a lot of people don't understand kind of how wildlife management works and there's there's different levels right like you have the biology level which is what i work at which is basically scientists and researchers that do studies and you know test type hypotheses and and come up with results but those recommendations then go forward and you know the policy and regulation is developed by managers but also politics and what we're starting to see is social policy is really starting to have a lot heavier play in wildlife management in Western Canada than even science. To a certain extent, you know, there you know, some calls that benefit, but there's also some calls that are, are a real detriment. And, you know, I, I think, you know, and I, I think to a certain extent this is happening all over the world. You're starting to see social policy playing a bigger role now in, in wildlife management. Whereas, you know, in Kent's and my budding careers as biologists, I mean, it was about science. And, you know, that's what drove a lot of things. Whereas now, you know, we're, we're starting to see shifts and, and it is dangerous. So in, I w- I'll jump back to that because I, based upon where you live, I'm going to bring up a question later. So we get the Trigger Effect TV show going. What was the original thought process is you guys come in and you design a show that you want to showcase your skill set? Was it originally to be just a Canadian show or did you always want to have broad distribution of it? What Dean and I originally planned for the TV show was we wanted to share all of our experiences. We were already doing a broad scope of, of trips and, and adventures. And, you know, when we would come back, everybody would be asking us, what did you do? What did you see? And, and we just decided, you know what, the best way for us to share this with everybody, because there was a lot of people that would never, ever do these trips or ever go on them, but everybody's interested in seeing what, what we saw and what we experience. So we decided to, you know what, we just bit the bullet. We bought the the editing software and equipment, the cameras. Uh, we just took the plunge. I mean, like any business, there's a risk when you start it. We weighed the risks. We put together a great business plan to to see that we were successful as a TV show. Yeah, we took the plunge and we haven't looked back. We started filming our season one and we learned a lot in the first couple seasons about uh, the whole TV industry. 
<laughs> and I, I tell bet. you, it was an eye opener. We we've we've looked at it from a consumer standpoint. Now, as a producers, it's uh, it's totally different. And and we don't even look watch TV the same way we used to prior to the starting our own production company. I, I can certainly understand that. And even though you're based in Canada, anybody in the states, really anybody around the world, can see you based upon you're distributed or shown on the Sportsman Channel. Yeah. And then if somebody doesn't have that or chooses, you know, has cut the cord and doesn't have cable TV, you're also on My Outdoor TV. Yeah, we, we, uh, we have actually quite a few different uh, venues. Uh, I mean, even YouTube as well. But I think to, you know, to answer the one question that you said there, Jason, like Kent and I always had the global scale in our mind when we, we first started the TV show. And I think... The main reason is not what you would think, which is the focus on hunting, but both Kent and I come from a post-secondary background in biology, as as you had mentioned. And I mean, we kind of had reverse roles. Kent concentrated on being a big game guide and and dabbled in his, his biology background, whereas I had a professional biologist you know, background, and I dabbled in big game guiding. But I think the big message that Kent and I saw, you know, is although a lot of the hunting TV shows out there, you know, try to do the conservation and management component, it's more the, I guess you would say, the smaller part of the show with the bigger part focusing on the hunting. Whereas Kent and I really felt that one of the things we wanted to share with the world is the big benefit we had of seeing everything from, you know, global, federal, and and regional policy, wildlife management, and science, and then the hunting component on top of that. So we really wanted to kind of deliver a different message. Although we are a hunting TV show, we also wanted to deliver the conservation and management side more from just saying hunters are conservation and management people. What does that really mean? That is the real purpose of Bushnell's Trigger Effect, which is to open people's eyes as to what that really means. And it is a fantastically shot show. I watched the moose episode that your cameraman took, which is on the newer season, and I've watched some of the older episodes. All very well done. That moose episode was just a phenomenally filmed beautiful location, very ethical hunt. I think it was like one shot and the moose was pretty much down. Yeah. Ran a little bit, but that's that's normal, but it wasn't very far. I just felt bad when it went down in the thickets and I said that had to have been a mess to get out. <laughs> Yeah, well, that that's the thing. I mean, to add to what Dean says, we also pride ourselves on showing real hunt. This is our venue to get ourselves out into in front of a, a lot of people, and we don't sugarcoat it. If if we have an oops or we make a mistake, you know, we we show that because realistically, Dean and I are just like everybody else that goes out hunting, whether it be in their backyard or you know, in their on their own property or around the world. Sometimes things work out, sometimes they don't, and that is part of sharing the experience of hunting. And and it, it comes across a lot better for the viewers because they can relate to things that happen during our, our trip. I don't know if you remember in the moose episode, we had the motor fail on us. Now, it, that that's part of being on, in a remote location. If, if you have equipment failure, you have to roll with it. You have to adapt and overcome. I mean, it's it's one of those things that we had to do, and we wanted to share that with the viewer that this is, if this happens to you, you can still go out and enjoy and have a good hunt, but you just got to be adaptable. And so it's one of the things that we pride ourselves on that we, we show it the way it is, and, and uh, we've got a great fan base that really appreciates that too. 
Yeah, that really was an interesting segment for anybody that maybe hasn't seen the current season. You're remote. I don't even know exactly where in Canada you were, but you were remote. There was no such thing as a road access. No. You've got the boat motor and it goes out and you guys are rowing all over the place. So I know you weren't traveling hundreds of miles up and down the river looking for moose because nobody's going to row that far, but it was kind of neat to see. And then that's what makes such great memories when you're when you look back on it is you can sit there and laugh and say, were we nuts? We rode all over that place doing that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, we were in Northern Manitoba for that trip. It was a fly in only. We chose a lake that uh, basically didn't have a name. There was no cabins on it. It was just me and my cameraman. And that was it. We were the only occupants on that lake other than the wildlife. And, and on day one, we went for basically a reconnaissance lake tour trip in the morning <laughs> with that is when we experienced the motor problems and from that point on we were we were basically down to arm strength to get ourselves around the lake but we still made it happen we still had a great time it was a great adventure and, and that's why we like to share that with people oh yeah and it was a great moose yes it was now dean tell me a little bit about i don't know what would be your favorite north american animal to hunt It'll be a surprise to a lot of people because, you know, everybody will think being from BC, it'll be grizzly bear or moose nap. But I have to admit, my absolute favorite animal to hunt is mule deer. And I, I think the reason is, is because, A, where I grew up, I mean, we were raised on wild meat. And the two meats that we ate and we went out after regularly was mule deer first and then mountain lion or cougar. I mean, that drove me to become a biologist. It drove me to have my specialty in mule deer and to study them. I really enjoy getting out and hunting mule deer. I find, especially the big mature bucks, you know, those three and a half to four and a half year old and older bucks are an incredibly smart creature. It's just, that would be my passion would be mule deer. One of your standard table fares as a kid was uh, mountain lion? Yes, definitely. I mean, I grew up in the interior BC in Vernon at the top of the Okanagan Valley. We had our deer season would open in September and usually was shut down by the end of November. And right at December when the snow hit, my grandfather was a houndsman and my family would, we would go out with uh, family friends, the postals, and we would chase cougars. And, you know, we have a very healthy cougar population. And what a lot of people don't realize about cougar and mountain lion is they're not like, you know, some of the cat species you see in Africa. Africa, where, you know, they come across carrion or something already dead, they'll eat it. A cougar will only eat what it kills, and it only eats fresh meat. And as a result of that, I would say it's probably, and I'm sure Kemp would support me on this, it's probably one of the most underrated meats in the hunting industry. It is absolutely fantastic. Yes, you're, you're correct on that one, Dean. Kent, what's your favorite North American species? Well, I have to kind of reiterate what Dean said. Being able to hunt just about everything you can here in Canada, I would have to say one of my most favorite animals to hunt. It might sound like a bit of a cop-out, but it's white-tailed deer. And the reason I say white-tailed deer is everybody in Canada that hunts generally has access to hunting white-tailed deer. And uh, where I grew up here in Manitoba, it's one of the meccas for big Canadian white-tailed deer. The reason I chose white-tailed deer is I don't look at it as just hunting the deer. I really, really love the challenge of finding a specific deer, uh, you know, a specific buck, whether it be a giant antlered buck or an old deer, and just targeting that animal. I find the white-tailed deer that inhabit our farmlands and, and rural areas here in Canada are one of the smartest animals out there. I mean, just to go out and, and harvest a deer is fairly easy, but to pick a specific one 
and target that one for your season or maybe two or three seasons. It might take you to get close enough for a shot. That to me is one of the biggest challenges I just love to do. So, And also moose would probably be my close second. <laughs> Now, moose is very high on my bucket list, and even just to try its meat, is I would consider that maybe a cross-off on my bucket list. It looks, when I've seen it cooked, like an amazing cut of meat to eat. Yeah, moose are a fantastic animal to hunt. I know a lot of people that have never hunted them and or are not familiar with moose hunting, and they see the shows, and they show a big moose just steps out, and, and the hunt is over. The actual... Hunting a, a, a bull moose during the rut is extremely exciting. Anybody that's elk hunted and you've had the elk bugling all around you, moose are very vocal during the rut, and it is an extremely exciting hunt. I guided for moose, for, like I said, for many, many years and have taken a number of um, trophy moose for my clients and for myself, and it is a really challenging and fun hunt, and it would be a close second to whitetail, no doubt. Neat. Now, I want to jump back to something that Dean said earlier when you talked about social policy. Both of you have hunted Africa before. Yes. Yes. Dean, you took a mountain zebra. Yep. And caught yep. some real pretty negative social media backlash, which many of us have. And on your website, if anybody goes to triggereffect.tv, as you're scrolling through, you'll get to it. There's a blue button towards the bottom that says Bushnell Short Clips. When you go on that, Dean, you did a great video on there. Well, actually, both of you are in the video, but I wanted to point yep. it out, and it's called Hunting the Big Picture. And talking about social change, that's also affected the, the grizzly hunting in B.C. as well, if I believe. Yes. Yes, it has, big time. And so nothing based upon science. You're accused when you shoot the mountain zebra of shooting an endangered species, and now social backlash has caused politicians to stop grizzly hunting where the folks that live in the cities, they don't. there isn't a grizzly that's walking down, at least not yet, walking down the center of the street. But for the people living in the bush or in the back country, that's a whole different ballgame. I'd love to hear a little bit about what's going on with Canada and some of the social backlash that's affecting the hunting industry and that you see affecting maybe your show when you put certain things online. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the key things to understand on that, Jason, and, it, you know, it, and it's going to be funny when you hear me say this, but it's true. When we're talking social policy, I mean, obviously the, the people that live in the cities are, are, you know, one of the issue because, I mean, they are very removed from, you know, the environment. Not all of them, but in general, the majority of them. But, uh, you know, when Ken and I did the hunting a big picture, and I hate to say this, but it's true, we didn't do it because of the anti-hunting community. We didn't even do it because of the big city community. We did it because of the hunting community. What people need to understand is that, you know, when they put comments out like that, and I'm going to use the mountain zebra because the mountain zebra is a reflection of the grizzly as well. When hunters come out and they start going against other hunters, whether it's the species they harvest or even the whole high fence argument, low fence, high fence, free range, you know, a lot of the comments we get are from hunters. And what they don't understand, and that's why Kent and I put that hunting the big picture video together, is that they need to understand that when you attack high fence hunting, when you attack free range hunting, when you attack species hunting, you're attacking hunting. You're not just attacking that individual or anything like that. You're attacking hunting in general. And I would have to say that that is one of the biggest reasons the anti-hunting community right now is winning a lot of the battles against the hunting community. We as a hunting community don't understand that we need to support each other. And that was the whole message we were trying to give on that video is that, you know, until we, we realize that, you know, as long as... 
as a hunting community, we pick each other apart. The the anti-hunting community or, or the rural, but the urban cities are always going to win these fights against us. And if people don't think that those comments hurt us, the grizzly bear is a prime example of that. You know, honestly, us as a hunting community, we failed the grizzly bear because we have created a perfect environment for, you know, non-educated urban centers and anti-hunters to directly affect our hunting and to directly affect the conservation and management to grizzly bear. And I would say right now that the social policy is the single biggest threat worldwide to hunting. And the worst thing about it is, is us as hunters are enabling that environment because we're too busy taking our own personal choices and assigning that to the hunting community and then beating everybody up for it. I I encourage people to watch it, and I thank you so much for bringing that up because I think out of all the messaging Kent and I have ever done in the 10 years of doing this, that hunting the big picture is, is the biggest passion Kent and I have is to walk up to every single hunter, man, woman, child, and say to them that it's one thing to have a personal choice, but understand it's just a personal choice. But as hunters, we better be supporting each other because if not, you know, I I can't say that hunting is going to be something that's going to be here four or five generations out because, you know, like I said, right now, you know, we're so busy passing our personal opinions on to people that we're just creating a very healthy environment for anti-hunting. Very much so. And that's why I loved that video. And I'm going to link that out and share it for listeners. They'll find it both on your website as well as mine and, and across social media channels people go to a zoo and they see any of the mainly african animals that seems to really get the ire up of folks besides predators predators really start a fire as well Mm -hmm. in 2012 i was lucky enough to hunt zimbabwe i was hunting on a property that was overrun with giraffe and i harvested a giraffe not a bit of that meat went to waste nothing yeah and the most aggravating comment i see and that's why i love that video is the hunter that says well i only hunt what i eat Well, either that makes you a hypocrite or just uninformed or even worse, both. Yeah. Yeah, it is aggravating to have keyboard warriors. You know, you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof sitting behind your keyboard criticizing somebody else on their hunting experience. And it is upsetting when you see that, that somebody will will comment negatively on, say, a mountain zebra or a giraffe and not truly understand the entirety of what that animal, what that hunt means to not just the the person in the picture, but to the surrounding community and to a number of other people. I mean, it, it is upsetting. We see it all the time on social media where a young hunter will post their very first buck. And yes, it's a young two-point mule deer or a little basket rack whitetail. And most of the comments are, congratulations, young man or young lady. But you'll get those one or two guys that comment, oh, I should have let that grow up and 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 be a big mature deer. Why would you shoot such a young young animal? It, it just aggravates me when I see comments like that. Right away, you're you're criticizing a young, youthful, maybe beginner hunter, and they see those posts, and immediately they start to question whether they did something wrong. And they did nothing wrong. We all started out hunting. Uh, we never shot our biggest buck ever on our very first hunt. There's very few hunters that can say that. I mean, we've always done... We it, Hunting is a progression. I mean, it's not about getting the biggest. It's about enjoying the experience, doing it ethically, doing it legally. And we should commend those people, whether they're young or old, and never, ever criticize them, even if it's a choice you wouldn't take yourself. Exactly. If it's a tag, if it's a legally bought tag 
for yeah. an animal that can legally be harvested, then my congrats goes out to anybody, whether it's a spike, a doe, or the biggest, you know, yeah. Saskatchewan whitetail that walked out that weighs 250 pounds and is sporting, you know, a 16 points. Well, I guess out there you guys would call that an eight point. I yeah, think yeah. count one side. <laughs> Otherwise, the 16 point would be like, holy smokes. <laughs> With that, the folks that say that, to me, they're more damaging than an anti-hunter. I can, oh, big time. I can yeah. educate an anti-hunter. I, I can ha- try to have a reasonable discussion with them. But a lot of times the folks that say, well, I only hunt for my meat, they get so set in their ways that they're not willing to look. And I don't know if it's jealousy because you know maybe they want to hunt Africa and don't or can't for whatever reason, or they've always wanted to do something. And even myself, Dean, you mentioned this, that your grandfather was a houndsman. Yeah. I originally thought that was a ridiculously cruel way to hunt mountain lions. And then I sat there and I says, well, the dogs get killed. It's on occasion, things happen. And then I started to say, well, there's got to be more to it than that. And I started really watching and I said, God, that's really actually a great way. It's true conservation. You get that cat up in the tree. Oh, it's a female. We're going to let that one walk. Oh, it's a young male. We're going to let that one walk. You're specifically targeting a certain type of cat, unless it's one that's proven to be harmful to livestock and it has to go. You can be very selective in the animal that you take, which is really what conservation is all about. Well, yeah, and I mean, I could honestly tell you as well, too, and I can't can attest to this. Uh, you know, in my 25-plus year career as a registered professional biologist who spent the majority of my time literally in the bush, I can literally count on one hand, and I don't need very many fingers, how many times I have physically seen a cougar without hound. I mean, they're an incredibly elusive animal. Most of the time when they hear humans, way before they could even see them, they're gone. And that's what people don't understand is that, you know, as in any predator-prey relationship, as a wildlife manager, I have to balance predators with the prey species. And the only way I can get for instance, mule deer predators, which their number one predator is cougar. You know, the only way we can control those populations is by relying on houndsmen and cat hunters, you know. So, and that's the problem, right? Like, I, one point I want to bring up is, is, uh, in that hunting, the big picture, is for some reason people, when they, like, can't call them keyboard warriors, you know, they seem to think that that comment they're making is targeted to the individual. But what they don't realize is the world is watching. And I can honestly say, and Kent will recall this, the most embarrassed I have ever been in my life as a hunter from North America was on that trip with that mountain zebra in Africa. Because what people forget in North America is, yes, we grew up hunting deer and moose and turkey. And those are common animals that are table fare for us. So the same passion and the same love for those animals, the African people have for theirs. And so a zebra is a moose, you know, a water buck is a deer. And we were sitting in camp that morning and they were very excited to have uh, a North American TV show there. They were super excited. And those guys were watching social media like hound dogs. And when that zebra picture got posted, we had one of the trackers there. His name was Samuel. He came up and he walked up to, to Kent and I, and he just said, is it wrong for me to hunt zebra? And I literally said, what the hell are you talking about, Samuel? And he says, well, I'm noticing that back at your home there in Canada, in the U.S., people are saying that it was bad that we hunted that. Like, are we wrong for doing that? That's the most embarrassed I have ever been in my entire life as a North American hunter because I sat back and I thought, here's a guy who is supporting his family, was raised hunting zebra, eats the zebra meat, you know, his family eats the zebra meat, 
and he's sitting there right now thinking that he is morally incorrect for doing what he's doing, and pardon my language, but because of a whole bunch of super ignorant North American hunters. Mm-hmm. We need to stop that, you know, we really do. And, and we need to stop and realize that North America does not set the world standards for hunting. Yes, we may view horses here as something you ride and as pets, but there's a lot of cultures that look at zebra and horses as a deer or a moose. Their table fare, exactly. Yeah. And what I try to explain, and, and this is very much so, is if the animal, and this can sound horrible, but it's the truth, especially in Africa, in many areas, is that if that animal has a value to it, it's going to be protected. If there's no value to it, then the folks want to move in their cattle, their their sheep, their goats, and that animal gets displaced to snares, to poaching, to whatever happens. Whereas when you and I go over there to hunt, we've put people to work. Yeah. The, the money goes into, and yes, not all the money goes to the local economy. The, the outfitter is running a business. He or she has to make a profit. That's understandable. You, you don't deny anybody a profit, but they then turn around and use that profit their business makes to increase anti-poaching patrols, food when there's droughts going on, which South Africa has been hit very hard. And I've talked to many of the outfitters that they're darn near belly up from spending so much money on feed. Yeah, It's not that you just go out there and willy-nilly just shoot whatever moves. You're going out looking for very specific things in an animal. And I think that's what people just can't come to grips with. They don't understand. And that's why I think it's so important to recruit and just introduce people to hunting. I, I talked to a gentleman online today and said, you might not understand about hunting. You might not ever want to hunt. But accompany somebody on a hunt. Go on a turkey hunt. Go fishing. Do something and enjoy the camaraderie of the outdoors. Oh, for sure. And just to step back, and, and uh, I, I'd like to comment on something you said about the value. If, if the animal has an actual economic value, it will be protected. I really fear for the grizzly bear in North America, or especially in British Columbia, due to the closure. They have zero protection now. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, and I'm sure Dean can elaborate on this, but the minute we took them off of the hunting list, their benefits have drastically decreased. Their value is a lot less. And I don't know if Dean wants to add something to that or not, but uh, I do fear that the grizzly bear are on a real slippery slope right now due to social policy and not proper management. I, I think the thing is, is that it, what people don't understand is that is, you know, the dollars that are generated from you know, hunting. And it's not just about the trophy fees and getting an animal, but it's just when you have money like that pumping into the economy, it does go into, for instance, funding people like myself who did research on wildlife wildlife and established population estimates. But I think the other thing that's dangerous about it as well, too, a little bit different than Africa is like grizzly bear are a very territorial, like territorial creature and, and the habitat can only support so many bears. And the danger of overpopulation in areas and the danger of expansion of those animals into areas that are less favorable habitat and especially that are going to increase, you know, human, you know, bear conflict. The loser all the time of those scenarios is not the humans, it's the bears. And so that's the kind of thing is that, you know, what people don't understand about management of apex predators is that, you know, you you need the money, you need the resources, you need the economy, 
you know, in order to keep those balances in place. And the problem is, is that when you strip the dollar out of that, and I hate to say it, but you know, we're in a day and age where the dollar drives everything. When you strip the dollar out of any of those things, it's going to be the animals that suffer. And, you know, Africa is a prime example. Like, I, you know, I know we kind of keep going back there, but, you know, a lot of people need to understand that, you know, as short as 70, 80 years ago, the majority of African species were in really big trouble. And what happened was, is that when all of a sudden they shifted to this new conservation model that they have, and as you said, Jason, assigned that economic value to it, what a lot of people don't realize is that those animals are right now presently at the highest numbers they've ever been. Correct. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the ignorance of people, you know, you shut down stuff and it affects it negatively. And we're not going to be having the same converse, conversation in 25 years if hunting dollars don't support those African species. All of a sudden, everybody be going, where'd they all go? Well, and many years ago, I spent a summer working out in the Glacier National Park area, which has a fairly robust grizzly bear population. And I was lucky enough to see a number of bears. They're, they're a magnificent animal to see. And I happened to be hiking in Waterton, which is the Canadian side of Glacier National Park. And I, I we stumbled upon a bear at a very, very close range. I, I don't ever care to be that close to one again. <laughs> But you're right. I've always thought that, and I've never hunted grizzlies. I've hunted black bear in Ontario, but never grizzly. But I always was under the impression that the hunting exposes the bear to, even if they're not shot, it exposes that bear population to say, hey, there's, they remember there's somebody out here that might, you know, they, they associate that human scent with maybe something I should avoid. If there's nobody any longer shooting at them, then that human scent becomes food. And yeah. not just the human is food, but they understand that that human might be carrying a cooler, sandwiches, whatever. Without the hunting, you're waiting for the folks that don't understand what a bear can do to be out screwing around in the woods, hiking, fishing, just whatever. And there's going to be some pretty nasty bear encounters. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, oh. it's it's predators learn the same way we learn. Like Kent and I always use this term. We say to people, like we kind of keep forgetting as humans we're animals. You know, we really do. And and I find that sometimes, even in the hunting community, we always try to overcomplicate things on understanding animal behavior. But I always say, if you understand yourself, you understand animal behavior. So as a kid, you know, I remember you're doing something, you do it wrong, you get slapped in the hand, or you you know you get told not to do it, or you know, and bears are the same way. You know, when a bear is out with a mother and a boar comes in and displays some dominance, that bear understands now that, okay, you know, I got to avoid bigger bears. And it's the same thing with human. You know, when, when they're out there and all of a sudden, you know, they're walking around with Joe and Joe gets shot and they know a human was there and they associate that smell, they know that, right? And and you're right. Like, I mean, it's, it is learned behavior. And at the end of the day, we keep forgetting that these are predators. And it wasn't long ago. It wasn't until our brains developed and we started walking up and we became a threat that people kind of forget that you know two three four you know thousand years ago human were a part of the food chain <laughs> we got eaten by predators you know so we have a fantastic way as the human race of standing from the outside and looking in and not realizing that we're a part of that whole circle of life right was it the yukon territory or alberta where the family was just killed by a grizzly that was, yeah, up that in was the yukon yukon yeah it was yeah. a mother and her and her newborn so yeah. people need to understand that an apex predator, a bear, they will hunt a human if they think that it's easy. They, they want the easiest calorie intake they can find. If that's carrion, berries, or a human, 
they're going to figure it out in their brain and go after it, whatever they determine is the best course of action for them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. But, you know, I think we also got to be careful not to villainize the bear either. Like, I mean, you know, definitely a bear, a cougar, I mean, any predator, if it recognizes a human as an easy meal, and, you know, it will take it. And then it's a learned behavior that that becomes an easy food source. But I will say this, 9.9 times out of 10, whether it's a grizzly or a black bear or a cougar, they're running the other direction. Right. You know, so, you know, I, I also don't want to make sure we're not villainizing these predators. I mean, they definitely will eat you if they have a chance to eat you and they think that it's safe and it's an easy, uh, you know, food source. But at the same time, you know, the, you know, they also do understand we're a threat. Yeah, I've always been a big believer in that if you're in bear territory and this black bears or, or grizzlies, you do, to an extent, enter the food chain. Yeah. Yeah. They are going to try to avoid you if possible, but if it's a habituated bear, not all of them, but a single bear, they may look at it differently. And you just have to have a healthy respect and an understanding of where you're going. They're a beautiful animal to see. They're a beautiful animal to watch. But that's, as a human, unless you're hunting them in, in this particular case, you can't anymore. That's the extent of what you want with them. So I, I, I agree the animals will suffer and it's going to take some strong pushback. And I don't know exactly how the Canadian government is structured if hunters can get that back before there's a large loss of bear life. I hate to see a bear population decimated because there's a, a lack of understanding from the governmental side. I really don't know what they're going to do because the problem is is that, you know, I, I think what it'll take is a shift in political government, you know, like we're going to have to have a different party get into place. But, you know, it's, again, you know, I keep coming back to the fact that the onus is on the hunting, you know, we have to start coming together. We have to start, you know, not siloing, you know, and start working together to, to get, you know, the proper messaging out. And, you know, we can sit and complain about those urban centers and, you know, city folk. And, you know, I've heard of from all the hunters, you know, they don't live in everything out. But what we need to understand as hunters, it is our job to educate those people. Exactly. We can't point the finger at them and complain about them, but what we can do is get into those urban centers and tell the real story. But we need to figure out how to work together first. And that's going to be our biggest hurdle. Yes. Once, if we can get everybody on the same page, as you just said, that will really, really help to as I said, even if you recruit somebody and they choose not to be a hunter, as long as they're not against it, it's a victory for logical science-based wildlife management. Yeah, that that's key for sure. So back to Bushnell's trigger effect, what is set to take place this upcoming year? Well, we've got some uh, we've got some fantastic trips coming up right away here. Actually, we leave in well, it's two weeks exactly. We leave for Argentina for a hunt down in Argentina. We're going to be down there for three weeks. We're going to be filming close to six episodes while we're down there. Wow. Um, We've been down there before. I must say that it's one of the blessings Dean and I have with the TV show, getting to travel to new places and have new experiences. I must say Argentina is a stunning place. The people, the culture, the food, the game-rich environment, I think is second to none. We had such a fantastic trip and met some great people down there and were invited to come back again that uh, Dean and I are heading down there in a couple of weeks. So it's a great place to go. I'm sure if, 
if anybody listening wants to uh, check it out, they, they need to go to Argentina. It is a fantastic place. And then shortly after Argentina, coming up in April, Dean and I will be heading uh, back to New Zealand, the South Island of New Zealand. We're going there. And I mean, New Zealand, you just have to say that, that country's name and, and it's synonymous with uh, hunters as being a premier spot to go. And we're going to be over there for three weeks as well. So we've got some exciting trips uh, coming up just this spring alone. Oh, I imagine. A lot of North American hunts as well, too, that we're going to be doing. Uh, we're going to be doing some waterfall in the Canadian prairies. We're going to be doing deer hunting all over North America. We have actually some moose hunts that are going to be coming up as well, too, that we're going to be doing in the uh, Newfoundland area as well. I mean, we never know where we're going to be going. I mean, half the time, you know, we think we know where we're going and all of a sudden we get another hunt and we're off somewhere else. And then future hunts right now, we're working on some areas like Ireland, Hungary, uh, Namibia, looking at going back to Africa again. And then, of course, uh, we always do our, you know, 60% content in North America as well. Fantastic. Argentina is one of those places that I don't think many hunters here in the States think about. Yeah. Most of the hunters in in the U.S., when you hear of Argentina, they always think of dove or wing shooting. But they have some absolutely stellar big game hunts down there that that are, like I said, second to none. I mean, it is some of the most beautiful country and uh, the whole experience is phenomenal. So for the people that are listening, when Bushnell's trigger effect goes to Argentina, just so people get an idea of what is involved in a TV show, logistically, how many people will go? Uh, actually, the one thing Kent and I've done, you know, being also, you know, business owners from you know an early age, one of the things we did when we talked to a lot of the outfitters is we asked them about, you know, what they liked and didn't like about TV shows. And one of the problems that they always had, the fact of TV shows showing up with a horde of people. And Kent and I also talked about it too as well is that, you know, hunting really, in all honesty, when you look at it, it's an intimate experience. You know, it's it's usually without camera crews, it's it's a one or two people experience the outdoors so believe it or not jason kent and i've actually weeded down where a lot of the time where we do these international trips we have three people max and kent and i've learned the skills of filming so we film each other we may bring a secondary camera person but most of the time when we do our trips we try to keep that level of intimacy you know really tight and so most locations we go to it's just Kent and I that show up, and we've just learned how to use multiple camera angles, uh, you know, some unique camera equipment, and we, we try to keep that experience, you know, intimate as opposed to having a small army running through the bush. That's fantastic. That's a great way to do it, because like you said, I've seen some shows that they'll show up with two camera people and a field producer, if that if that's in, they can have a small army, and you've got all these people traipsing behind you, and it does lose some of that... It's well. That's not seen on camera. As a hunter, it has to lose some of that mystique, that fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, that is one of the things that uh, that when we started our production company and our business, having our backgrounds from uh, the biology and the guiding end of it, that is one of the things that we decided when we were going to start this. That we have to make it viable for outfitters, sponsors, guides, everybody that's involved in producing these TV shows. We have to make it viable for them. So Dean and I took it upon ourselves to learn everything from cameras to field production to uh, filming to everything. And uh, I know Dean won't say it, but I I have to give a shout out and a huge thanks to my partner Dean there. He is our 
our head editor for the TV show. So everything you see on the TV show, Dean produces, and he has mastered that skill as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Makes me look a lot better than, than it, it really happens. So, I mean, keeping our company internal and not having to rely on other people has made it uh, just a better business for both of us. So. Oh, I imagine. And, and then congrats to you then, Dean, because the editing on your show is very good. I really enjoy the episodes. Uh, thank you very much for that. You know, what it was is that in our first two years when we started the show, we did go with an outside editor. And I, I think at the end of the day, like I said, I, I really like using the word intimate because for Kent and I, that's what it is. Hunting isn't just a passion. For us, it's an intimacy. Like, I mean, it, it, it on many different levels, spiritual, mental, physical. I mean, it, it really is that connection. And I will say this, like part of the reason I like filming with Kent and doing everything that way is besides my wife, nobody knows me better than Kent. I mean, we grew up together. <laughs> and so as a result of that, he captures the essence of me as a hunter in the field. And I do the same for him. And so, and it's the same thing, putting it together. You know, we know what we experienced in the field. We know what we want to get across to the viewer. And so who better to, to edit that and to review that than Kent and I. So, you know, we don't have a big production crew. We're very small and, and we keep it that way. And what we're hoping is, is when the viewer watches that, I mean, you get to know Kent and I, and we always say this, the biggest compliment we can get is not, hey, I love your show. The biggest compliment we can get is, hey, I feel like I can go hunting with you. Because then we know that people are getting that intimate of hunting across. One of the great things as a company, Trigger Effect, you, you've got Bushnell as your title sponsor, but you guys have really partnered up with some quality companies. Uh, some of them I use quite a bit, like Savage Arms. For a lot of people, that they, they know that this is show season, and you guys just shot a whole series of things down at the SHOT Show. And tell me, from your main sponsors that you were visiting with down there, what were some of the neat things you came across for 2019? Well, yeah, Shot Show is uh, is is one of those shows. Unfortunately, it's not open to the general public. But as for manufacturers or retailers, and or media people like uh, Dean and myself, uh, we can get access to that. And as part of uh, what we do with our great lineup of sponsors, like you had mentioned, Bushnell, Savage, Federal, uh, we go down, get to experience new products that are going to be hitting the market here right away before they actually hit the market. And myself being a predator hunter and a coyote hunter from way back, I think one of the, one of the most unique things that has come out in the last year or two is from Primos, and they have their surround view blinds, and this is a technology that they have developed, and it took a few years in uh, in research and, and development to do, but it is a type of blind that you can actually see through. So when you're sitting in a in a uh, what looks like a camouflage blind from the outside and to the animals is actually, when you're sitting inside it, you can see through it like a one-way mirror. You feel like you're sitting out in the wide open. Primos has come out with that last year. They This year they've got uh, that same concept of material in a pop-up shield that a lot of turkey hunters use and or coyote or predator hunters use. Uh, it's something that can quickly be taken down. You can carry it and then quickly pop it up and you're sitting in behind what looks like a camouflaged blind from from the outside, but you can actually see right through it. So you have no restrictions in your eyesight or of the hunting field. But I would have to say out of all of Primos's new products, I am uh, 
super excited to get my hands on their new 360 call, uh, electronic call. You and me both. It, it the, is something else. It, the it's going to change. Net. Yeah, the dog net, the 360 dog net. It's going to change the actual concept of using electronic calls for predator hunting. I fully believe that with the new developments they have on how to send the sound out, the type of speakers they're using, and all the different features with it. I mean, if people go to our to our clips that we filmed in SHOT Show, they'll, they'll get a better understanding than I can actually explain here right now. But it is something to really look forward to in the future is that 360 dog net uh, electronic call from Primos. And I'm going to put a link to it because I was watching that series and the, the short video clip that you put out there, the gentleman from Primos just did a fantastic job displaying it and they left nothing off you, with being able to control multiple calls and get the coyotes thinking that there's multiple coyotes they're coming into to tripod built right into it to get it above snow, rocks, dirt, mud, whatever's on the ground. They yeah. left nothing to chance and what an amazing looking item and so i'll have a link to your video as well as a link to primos out to their dognet series uh and everything else the i'm w really excited to get a hold of one of those shields from primos yep. because i i want to try some turkey hunting and having that small shield to sit behind i think is just fantastic Yep, no doubt. And I think Dino will probably add some more things. I mean, we saw some great products down there this year. Yeah, you see, I, I, I'm not, I, I just can't drill it down to like what Kent did on, on I mean, there's so many, you know, pieces of equipment out there right now that our sponsors are bringing. I mean, King's Camo, I, I really encourage people to go there. Uh, they, they've come out with a new type of pan called the Preacher Pant. And, you know, I don't know why I never thought of this, but, you know, it's an actual hunting pant that has all of the flexibilities, but they actually built a, a knee pad into them you know so i mean how many times have us hunters had to drop to a knee and there's rocks or pebbles or like in argentina they have what they call star thistle it's everywhere you know just to be able to have it where you know let's face it we know that accuracy is all on comfort and you know they think of small stuff like that you know savage arms has come out with a great shotgun that has a uh, a magazine into it and it's got all of the options of a rifle in a turkey gun you know, so it's yeah. got like the Accu trigger, the Accu stock, it's got the Accu fit. And, you know, so you can basically tweak this thing the way that people tweak a rifle, but into a turkey gun, you know, and Bushnell, of course. One thing I'll say about Bushnell, it, we all grew up with Bushnell. Everybody did. I mean, it was the optic that everybody went to growing up as, you know, our grandfathers and our fathers and everything like that. But the one thing Bushnell's really done now is they have tackled the uh, optic market and saying, okay, you you know, we get it, there's the, the run-of-the-mill or the entry-level optics, but, you know, if we want to be competitive, we got to start going after the advanced optics because there's a lot of hunters now that are demanding, you know, that European quality here in North America. And Bushnell has done an amazing job at not just competing, but out-competing with their forge line, but keeping it at a price mark that you can afford. You don't have mm -hmm. to mortgage your house, you know, to, to put a good optic on. So, uh, you know... I, I, I have to say, we, we also have some new sponsors that are coming on board. We have Tacticam, which for Kent and I being, you know, camera junkies and trying to capture some unique angles on hunts, Tacticam is not a GoPro. It's not a Wasp, which was designed for either the racing industry or the extreme sport industry. Tacticam is designed 
by hunters for hunters. And that really got Kent and I cranked because, you know, they're not worrying about capturing anything but quality footage for easy use. So, uh, you know, I could go on and on and on and on. I mean, Tops Knives, you know, is, is come out with some incredible lineups of hunting knives that are not just high quality, but super durable at a great, great price mark. There's a ton, but I really encourage people, you know, go go have a look at our series. You'll be able to see all of the stuff in a little bit more detail. Yeah, and you've got a great link. Your website is so nicely set up for finding information on there that anybody can go right to the sponsor's link and boom, everybody's listed out there and you just click on it. As you said, that's what I'm curious, really excited to watch and curious is to hear how you like when you get, say, in Argentina with Tacticam and those new five-level series, 5.0s, how that should yeah. really help to keep that intimacy that you guys like to, to capture. Well, and oh, they shoot sure. in 4K. Yeah. Like, that's the amazing thing. I mean, they're literally the three-quarters the size of a Cuban cigar, and they shoot in 4K and 120 frames a second. So it's just, it is an amazing technology. It really is. Yeah, that, and that's the thing, I think, with Dean and I keeping our field crews down to ourselves and maybe an extra camera person, having these very easy-to-use, very advanced cameras designed for the hunting industry will just actually, in the long run, produce a better episode for us, which in turn produces better viewing for the viewers and better coverage for our sponsors. I mean, it's a win 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 for everybody as far as we're concerned and we're pretty excited to get uh, get those down in argentina and get working with them i bet so this is going to be interesting to watch and I, I encourage folks if you don't have cable go out and at a minimum check out the website and check out the youtube channel which i'll have links to in the show notes to see how the whole show is encompassing all the different animals that are hunted it's just really neat to watch uh, you guys are really hitting it up with whether it be gold tip or like i said savage arms federal ammunition all of that is such top-notch product and easily accessible the the nice thing is none of these sponsors that you're using it's not somebody you can buy a 16 18 1900 savage rifle but you don't have to savage has exactly. great I took all my animals in Africa using a 30-odd 6 from Savage, and I have a 6.5 Creedmoor in Savage, and I love the rifles, and I don't think I spent over $500 on either rifle. They've got a really good price point for their, their rifles. I mean, all their guns, their shotguns, everything, they're top quality, and and the technology and the advances they've made with the AccuFit uh, stock and the AccuTrigger and, and all that are just I mean, for an out-of-the-box gun, we have some of the best shooting guns out there in the Savage lineup. I mean, I, I've i been a long-time coyote predator hunter, and I've owned just about every make and model of 22-250 out there. And I still say this, and I know I'm sponsored by Savage, but I still say for an out-of-the-box gun, the 22-250 I have from the Savage is probably the most accurate out-of-the-box gun I've ever shot. I stand by that. I, I'm not saying that because they're sponsors. I'm saying that because I believe it. I don't discount that. Here in Michigan, near where I live, is one of the only indoor 200-yard ranges. Yeah. I bought my 6.5 Creedmoor, took it over there, and I had three different styles of ammo because, as anybody knows, no bullet shoots the same. Every yeah. gun has a bullet that it likes a little bit better. And my Savage 30-odd-6, I can put high-end ammo in there, and it continues to go back to 180-grain Federal, the, the 
big game ammo. It just shoots that stuff straight, and it loves it, and I, I never fail with that ammo. Whereas with my 6.5 Creedmoor, we used a couple different ammos, and again, settled in on a federal round that it just shot dead on. Three bullets from each one, a total of nine shots. I was zeroed in at 200 yards, and that was off of a gun that I spent less than... $450 on, which is a lot of money, but in the world of firearms, that's really the entry-level price point. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and and like you said, it's entry-level, but with a quality of a high-end uh, price point. I mean, it's... Exactly. They're, they're well, great Kent, Kent, and I, Kent and I get asked this all the time. Everybody's like, okay, come on, you know, give us give us the truth. Like, you know, what you guys are hunting with and the shots you're pulling off, it's, it's something else. And, you know, Kent and I will say this, as God is our witness, and you can phone any of the outfitters on our website that we've hunted with, everything we use is straight out of the box from the manufacturer. You know, we don't, we don't like, you know, it's not like we're shooting, you know, with one gun and then, you know, doing the Hollywooding with another. I mean, everything we use is straight from Savage, straight from Federal, straight from Bushnell. And same thing, we don't reload. I mean, we're, now we are using Federal Premium. You know, and Kent and I both love the trophy bonded tip, but it is straight from the factory ammo. Yeah, it's ammo that anybody can walk into their local sporting goods store and and pick up, go down to the shooting range, sight in their rifle. And so it doesn't, and I have no problem with a person that has a high-end custom rifle. God bless them. They, anybody can do whatever they want to do. Yeah. I happen to just like Savage and I've had great luck with it. And it's a way that you can get into a sport and you don't have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars. You can get a great Savage rifle with a scope on it, five $600. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you may want to update those down the line, update a piece of it, maybe do a little different work on it, but you can still get a great rifle without spending a fortune that can take down pretty much, you know, whether you do a 30 odd six or a 300 Win Mag or whatever, they cover all that. So you've got great sponsors. It's, it's amazing. I, I look forward to seeing what you accomplish in Argentina as well as everywhere else that you guys are lucky enough to be able to experience. No, it's it, it's true. We have uh, we have some great sponsors on board. That doesn't happen overnight either. I, I want to kind of maybe point something out that you know Dean and I are coming up on our hundredth episode that we've produced. And when we started this show, of course, we were rookies at it, and we started off at lower end with no sponsors or just a product sponsor. And it's taken a lot of hard work and a lot of effort on both our parts to to get it to where it is right now. And the sponsors uh, reflect that. You know, with with the top names like Savage and Federal and Bushnell and Tops Knives and Gold Tip, SCI Canada. These are the people that believe in us, understand our motives with the TV show. And yeah, we, we really, really <laughs> enjoyed the ride and uh, are pretty excited that we're coming up on our 100th episode. Oh, I bet. Congratulations. Yes. For anybody that's ever looked at or contemplated a show, these sponsors get literally mobbed by everybody. So when you see somebody that's running with these high quality names to be a be producing your hundredth episode and have such a great team lineup speaks volumes to your credibility and your, your passion for what you're doing. Yeah. Well, thank and, you. and, and, and we're just getting warmed up. <laughs> Another hundred episodes in you. Oh, for sure. Uh, fantastic. Uh, we, we, we may look like old dogs, but I'll tell you, our passion and our drive is, is a young dog game. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Again, I thank you gentlemen for your time. I know it's valuable and you've got some mega long-term trips to plan coming up. So I don't want to take you away from that. I just really appreciate this. Again, the show notes, I'm going to have everything you can want to know about Bushnell trigger effects, trigger effect listed in there so that it's very easily accessible to anybody. Don't feel that you have to write this down as a listener to the show because you just go to the show notes and you'll be able to access not only their website, but I'll have you guys' Facebook page and your Instagram page listed on there as well. Well, thank you very much, Jason. Um, We appreciate your time as well. I'm sure I can speak for Dean on this point. We would love to do this again. So maybe after uh, uh, we're back from Argentina and New Zealand, we can do a follow-up and and just maybe explain to you and your viewers uh, how everything worked out with us. Oh, that'd be fantastic, yes. But Argentina and New Zealand are two of those spots that I... I don't think anybody can quite comprehend until they go there. Exactly. Well, same with Africa. I mean, it's really anywhere in the outdoors. It's all about the total experience, not just, you know, shooting an animal. No, for sure. For sure. Well, gentlemen, I thank you very much for your time. And I really appreciate, you know, being able to bring a little more background on you guys to my listeners, because I hope they go out, watch the show, support you, and support the great sponsors that believe in you guys and what you're doing. Well, thank you, Jason. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Dean and Kent, and you guys have a wonderful day. You You too. too. Thanks.